everyone is invited. Our birthday celebration right here at the radio station on Route 1 in East Orland is a great opportunity to celebrate 29 years of WERU and to meet people who love and support the radio station, listeners and volunteers alike. Listen and dance to great live music headlined by People of Earth with other artists to be announced. We'll have delicious food, a music sale, station tours, and more. And the whole thing will be broadcast live on WERU. That's the WERU birthday celebration, Saturday, May 6th from 11 to 2, here at WERU on Route 1, heading east, six miles from Bucksport. We hope you can make it. Boat Talk is brought to you in part by Captain Yo's Flaming Fish Performance Models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. It's 10 o'clock and it's uh, time for Boat Talk on 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, WERU.org. We are WERU. Here's Boat Talk. Good morning. Good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. That brings around Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your two rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. We are joined today by Gardner Pickering of the Hughes Company, who's going to be talking about kit boats in a little bit. But Boat Talk is, I said, a call-in show, and we do our level best to raise the tide. And uh, we seem to be working pretty well on that one. Uh, we have, uh, well, I'll let Mike go into the, uh, the local current news first. Here, Mike. Nice to have you back, bud. You missed, uh, yeah. You missed last month. You kind were, of out of shape, aren't you? You were snowed out last month, and then the month before that, we were all snowed we out. We were snowed out, that's right. Yeah, and it's nice to have a Tuesday without a blizzard, I would I would just say. This morning, it's awful nice out there. Um Almost too nice, but still, uh, you know, ain't summer yet. Yeah, I did say it was a call-in show, and I didn't give the number, so let me do that quickly first. The call-in number for Boat Talk is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, and we have a phone call already. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. It's Captain Yo. Good morning, Captain. I was reading about the passage of Cape Horn, and several accounts describe a strong west-to-east current off the uh, tip of South America, which would seem to substantiate Allen's uh, information about the Pacific being higher than the Atlantic. And then I decided to take a look at an atlas and take a look at the Straits of Magellan because it sounds like a tricky, pretty tricky place. And I ran across this thing in the early part of the, of the atlas, it's a map of Earth's oceans, and it indicates, as Judith of Rockland contended, that sea level is not level. It shows the surface of the sea varies as much as 260 feet between its lowest and highest points. And what I think is really interesting is the lowest point in Earth's oceans is in the Western Indian Ocean, right about where the Maldives are located. And then several thousand miles east of that, just east of New Zealand, the map shows that there is a mountain of water, which is just about as high as the low point in the Maldives. Now, this atlas was published in 1982, and I don't know if that has changed or if they're deeper or smaller or what, but I still have a very hard time understanding how a mountain of water, 80 meters high, it says here, could exist only a couple of thousand miles away 
connected by open waterways to a trough in the ocean that was 80 meters deep. And what kind of force would keep those waters from flowing into each other and becoming level again? And I certainly can't imagine how that could possibly be linked to global warming. Anyway, I thought I'd throw that out in our ongoing discussion about sea level. And uh, if anyone else has some information, I'd be very interested to hear it. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Yo, isn't there a um, bulge at the equator? Well, it says Earth is a an ellipsoid, not a sphere, okay? So it does show that, yes, Earth is fatter at the equator and a little compressed at the poles. However, these high and low points do not correspond with that. In fact, the highest and lowest points are along the equator. The low point in the West Indian Ocean is just about at the equator, and the high point just east of New Zealand is at, let me see, 15, 20 south. So this map doesn't indicate that it would be an equatorial phenomenon. It almost would seem to indicate there's some kind of dynamo underground in those spots, which is creating a water magnet. Or <laughs> I can't imagine. I simply can't imagine because as big a water body as I've ever seen, well, like the cove out here, tide's coming in, water's flowing into the cove. Uh, that's just what happens. And why wouldn't it happen in Australia if it happens out here? Well, uh, thanks Yo. again, guys. I'm going to get off the line. All right. Thank you, Yo. I, I do have a, a probably bogus theory for my uh, my contention that the Pacific Ocean is higher, and that's just a matter of masses. The Pacific Ocean, everybody agrees, is the largest mass of water, and since centrifugal forces acting all around the Earth, the bigger mass, I should think, would want to pull up you know, try to escape more than a, a smaller ocean mass, like the Indian Ocean, perhaps, is probably one of the smaller ones. The, I'd say the larger the uh, surface area is, like uh, bigger than your coffee cup there, uh, the larger the possibilities for surface effects would be. Um, I thought I understood there was like as much as a 14-mile uh, bulge around the equator, but uh, um, uh, he mentioned 200-and-something uh, miles uh but next time you're sailing off to paradise, that'll mess with your head, won't it? Uh, and I guess there's a reason why sailors always been superstitious about sailing off the edge of something, you know? You're going to have to start plotting your downhill courses, I guess. Yeah. And uh, no, I doubt that's uh, – I, I would think that's um, geography, geology, uh, you know, uh, geophysics uh, more than it's global yeah. warming. Uh, but, of course, uh, more water won't help probably, um, you know. Yeah. And, we was going to talk about that this morning and a bunch of other stuff. We're doing boat talk. We answer the phone whenever that, whenever it rings around boat talk. That's a you know we run a fairly loose ship around here, so to speak. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We did uh, uh, last month uh, again. There was a big blizzard coming by, and we snuck uh, the show in uh, right before it broke that afternoon. Um, I started the program uh, annoyed with something I'd heard on the talk radio in the truck. Uh, here's a big blizzard coming in the springtime. Somebody calls up and says, how you like your global warming now? You got your blizzard coming. And I was, you know, it's kind of stupid. So we talked about it on Boat Talk. Yo called in. And then um, it turned out the soapbox, WERU soapbox, was the uh, Thursday after that Tuesday. And the subject come up again with some interest. And uh, so since then, I've stuck my nose a little bit more into it. I looked at a – read a – Strange, kind of remarkable book. Parts of it were incredible. Parts of it were very puzzling. But uh, it's by an Indian fellow from India, Amitav Ghosh, and uh, it's called The Great Derangement. And um, he makes some interesting points. And the biggest one is that politics will overwhelm science, uh, would be his point. Um, people's interests are more with um, uh, power and money than they are with absolute possible truth and surrender and power and money. And uh, that will overcome a lot of stuff. Now, I've always used, uh, being a fellow that likes to listen to the talk radio and the truck and stuff, I've always used global warming as a political argument, um, the effect that you can have just by throwing crap at something, by throwing crap at, a, at an argument, by zooming in on a little stupid crap. 
and uh, not zooming out and seeing the big picture. And, um, you know, when um, arguing politics, I'll, I'll point out global warming, but uh, when arguing global warming, I'll po- point out politics, too. Uh, Donald Trump referring to talk radio as, as truth uh, facts as he's president of the United States. So, you know, um, the power of misinformation is, is uh, I think, can't, can't be underrated. And... Um, it's like a lawyer. You want to uh, always talk about reasonable doubt. That's what science is all about. But unreasonable doubt's not a cool thing. And you can sometimes tell um, people uh, uh, the tendency is to uh, what you do when you make war on somebody. You mock. You demean. You demu- dehumanize. You uh, when when you uh, get na- hear name calling and stuff. Bad sign. Very bad sign. Um, so anyway, the uh, politics will overwhelm that. You can uh, you can throw enough mud in, in the water and smoke in the air that uh, people won't zoom out and see the long view. And and again, um, our long term interests are possibly in seeing this accurately. Um, the phrase "history might not be kind" springs to mind. You know, so this uh, great derangement, Amitav Gosh. Um, here's here's the part that kind of blew me away. He says it's easy to predict that the politics will overwhelm the practical and, and uh, facts, so to speak. Then what? Then what? Okay. Uh, we possibly got a, a, a quite a damaged uh, planet. He separates being from India. Uh, he, he sees a big uh, division between the East and the West, uh, the East being uh, much more populated and historically much more um, uh, – much less uh, – oh, um, industrialized. And as I think it was uh, Gandhi pointed out, if everybody in India uh, lived the uh, lifestyle of the Raj, the place would be stripped like it was by locusts. There's not enough uh, resources uh, to support all those people. So the remarkable, um, uh, the great derangement, Amitav Gaj, his point is, here's what uh, he predicts is going to happen when uh, uh, things all get past the point of being uh, uh, nicely manageable. He calls it the armed lifeboat theory, and that works against the uh, uh, politics of attrition. And you got to think about uh, uh, the masses of people. Uh, but the armed lifeboat is what the uh, fortunate people retreat into. Good plan for a few people for a little while. <laughs> um, we've done a lot of lifeboat stories on on boat talk here. I don't recommend ever uh, stepping uh, into a lifeboat unless you absolutely have to, and then it's usually, you know, um, again, not someplace you'd like to be. Yeah, and especially one with arms, guns. <clears throat> the armed lifeboat. Again, it's a it's a it's a bigger metaphor, but yes, uh, the armed lifeboat is is what the uh, more fortunate people will retreat into, and and uh, heck with the hindmost. Yeah. Um, best of luck. Mm-hmm. I uh, I should also mention too that if somebody would like to uh, email into Boat Talk rather than calling on the phone, we have the, our email address open, which is boattalk at gmail.com if you'd like to send in an email. Looked at something else that was interesting, too. It's a website called What's Up With That, and Watts is W-A-T-T-S, like Watts, mm-hmm. uh, Electric Watts, wattsupwiththat.com. They are uh, uh, climate uh, deniers, although in their policy uh, statements, they don't want any name-calling, um, uh, including deniers and um, uh they don't want. They don't allow trolls, flame bait, personal attacks, thread jacking, and/or socket puppetry. Um, they are. Here's what I'm trying to point out here. They are respectful deni- denialists. They um, they acknowledge the fact of global warming. They just dispute the politics and the liabilities of it. And they say that the facts of it are basically uncon- un- uncontrovertible. That it's happening. And even you'll find, uh, read the Rolling Stone ex- uh, story about Exxon last uh, July. Um, Michael Hansen was, uh, uh, James Hansen was uh, interviewed in the Rolling Stone in December. Excellent article on the future here. And, and again, um, uh, things are happening that never happened before. We call this era the Anthropocene. Yeah, I like that name. Yeah, where man, anthro, can affect the uh, pocene, the planet. You're making it, yes. I, I had a geology professor many years ago who used to say sort of the same sort of thing that um, there's what's called index fossils, which are fossils uh, that you find fairly widespread on the planet, but they uh, only you can only find them in very certain narrow uh, 
layers, I mean, at certain times of, of sediment. Um, so they can, you can identify how old some sediments are by finding an index fossil in the sediments. He said, uh, man, that's going to be an index fossil. If you're doing politics, you don't like incontrovertible, unarguable facts that science can put in front of you, like the Earth is not 6,000 years old. Here's some stuff that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, tens of thousands of years old, and we can kind of prove that too. But uh, again, that's... Uh, not an argument you want to make if you're if you're a politic, and I'm fascinated by this. Uh, again, this what's up with that? The grades of of uh, looking at the thing again. They uh, many people will acknowledge it, but but not accepting the liability. Here's another thing I thought was uh, pretty interesting about the what's up with that dot uh, com website. They have a policy of no name calling. Third uh, Jack and her socket puppetry. Here's some uh, subjects that are off limits. Uh, with those people, and again, they're trying to shed doubt on, on climate change. Uh, religion is barycentrism. I have no idea what that is. Astrology, aliens, Bigfoot, chemtrails are out of bounds on that website, okay? Not discussable. <laughs> Neither is 9-11 and birth certificate trutherism, uh, UFOs, or the electric uh, universe, and mysticism. So they try to keep it semi-real as... as uh, again, what's up with that? They're deniers, and, and uh, well, uh, not exactly. They're... Well, that's what's nice about being a human, too, I suppose, is having a, a variety for discussion. You know, We need frames to keep our heads straight that we can live in, Yeah, you know? Well, um, this is Boat Talk, so uh, what do you say we get to something about boats? I have an interesting little piece that was sent to me by my friend John Beakey uh, from the Internet. So since it is from the Internet, I... Uh, won't make any claims as to its veracity, but it's uh, from somebody went through the logs of the uh, Constitution, old Ironsides, and uh, found this uh, information from the log and made it into this little story here. It begins uh, on July 27, 1798, the USS Constitution sailed from Boston with a full complement of 475 officers and men and 48,600 gallons of fresh water, 7,400 cannon shot, 11,600 pounds of black powder, and 79,400 gallons of rum. Her mission was to destroy and harass English shipping. Making Jamaica on October 6th, she took on 686 pounds of flour, 68,300 gallons of rum, and then she headed for the Azores, arriving there 12 November. She provisioned with 550 pounds of beef, 6,300 gallons of Portuguese wine, and then on November 18th, she set sail for England. In the ensuing days, she defeated five British men's-of-war ships and captured and scuttled 12 English merchant ships, salvaging only the rum on board each. By 26 January, her powder and shot were exhausted. Nevertheless, although unarmed, she made a night raid up the Firth of Clyde in Scotland. Her landing party captured a whiskey distillery and transferred 40,000 gallons of single malt scotch aboard by dawn. And then she headed home. The USS Constitution arrived in Boston on 20 February 1799 with no cannon shot, no food, no powder, no rum, no wine, no whiskey, and 38,600 gallons of water. I just reading about the Royal Navy. I don't know if this is true about the American Navy, but in the Royal Navy, they had a policy of they did not pay off the sailors until the, the ship's commission was over and it returned home, commission over, okay? Some ships would stay out forever. Theoretically, they never paid those men. And the uh, and again, that was in the budget. That, that money was being used. Uh, again, it's you know pretty good gig they had going there. But sailor's life is not an easy one. The sailor will put up with quite a bit, but he will not do it without liquor. Okay, they stab, that's, that's the basis of the Royal Navy right there. When the rum bottle's gone... When the rum bucket's empty, the uh, sailors will mutiny. But until then, you can keep them going. Uh, so pretty damn important right right next to cannonballs, I would say. Yeah. yeah. 
possibly one, above beef. Yeah, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Weevilly biscuits, good rum yeah. makeup for uh, you know. Yes, sir. <laughs> We will we'll rummage through anything if you'd like to give us a call. Yeah, got another uh, thing from the newspaper here, uh, Bangor Daily News. Uh, lobster blood, it turns out, is uh, one of the newest, coolest things in the um, uh, cosmetic um, uh, skincare in- industry. And there's a, a main company called Lobster Unlimited, LLC. And they are uh, talking about extracting hemolymph from lobsters, lobster blood. Okay, this uh, hemolymph has uh, a lot of good uh, properties, apparently, including, oh, um, a, uh, let's see, um, it can be used to treat dry skin, chapped lips, cold saws, minor cuts and burns, among other things, uh, including shingles, has uh, given some amazing results. Now, this hemolymph occurs in other fishes, but in lobsters, um, when you boil lobster, the white stuff, that's the hemolymph. Oh, okay. okay. I was going to say, wonder, what is lobster butter, and, and how do you extract it? I can't well, imagine. Well, here's the, here's the other interesting thing. We throw quite a bit away. Um, fellow in charge says he can get about a gallon of hemolymph from a crate of lobsters in about 45 minutes. Huh. And we throw away, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, more than a couple crates. It's a $50 billion industry in the cosmetics uh End of things, you know, and it, it could be a very valuable stuff. Um, talking about other things they make from uh, spare lobster parts, including golf balls and dog biscuits. Yep. Yep. But skincare stuff from lobster blood. And, again, we uh, throw away quite a bit of the lobster, let alone Maine was never big on processing lobsters. That's true. Yeah, That's only been coming on lately, yes. Uh, and the reason being that... We're very fierce on selling lobsters in their shell here. Once a, a lobster leaves its shell, you don't know whether it was legally caught. So, um, again, we have historically always uh, sent our lobsters, mostly out of state, quite a bit to the maritime provinces, Canada, mm-hmm. to be um, processed. Uh, it's coming on here nowadays, but, again, uh, we throw away a lot of lobster parts, most of it, when you get right down I to it. I bet you they don't throw away the lobsters after they take it, the blood out. <clears throat> Interesting. Just, just guessing. Hemolymph, uh, lobster, lobster blood. Uh, what was the uh, dragon blood? Who was that? Charlie Sheen, right? Makes you winner. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> totally blank on that. Oh, yeah, again, uh, TMZ. So anyway, we are doing boat talk this morning. We'll take a call from anybody about anything, and we're also going to talk to Gardner Pickering in a few minutes about uh, making boat kits and stuff. Um, the uh, spring watching season is coming on, Alan, but it's not quite here yet. It seems like it might be summer out there today, but it ain't I've quite seen some here people yet. putting out floats, so yep. that, yeah, it must be pretty close. Yeah. I saw some people uh, building the float on the lake at my house, uh, and the uh, it's a hydro-controlled lake, and it is rising faster than I've ever seen it coming, and I hope they judge their distance. I'm looking at that this morning thinking it could end up pretty funny, but anyway. Um, tide in the lake. Um is a ongoing joke at my house. Um, there's another story here about uh, there are turbines uh, that they've been testing off of uh, Monhegan Island, and they are uh, raising some controversy. Uh, fishermen are not happy about uh, uh, turbines in uh, any area, basically, uh, let alone electric cables on the sea bottom. Um, don't like them above or below the water at all, but the... Um, the thing is coming on. The project's called AquaVenture One, and it's going to put a pair of six megawatt uh, floating turbines about two and a half miles off of uh, Monhegan Island. Those uh, towers are going to be 328 feet tall. Well, they had to be really tall for those big blades to uh, still clear whatever happens to sail underneath them. Yeah. I mean, you know. um, and again, uh, floating and 328 feet tall. I find uh, deliver boats and. Um, Every once in a while, we will have a malfunction in GPS, and there was one time we were coming in from the Gulf of Maine, and, and uh, we were kind of curious about where we was exactly, and, and but we could see the three blinking lights from the uh, windmills on Vinyl Haven. Yeah. And we didn't know where we were, but we knew where Vinyl Haven was. They're you can pretty, see them from everywhere. Have you seen them in, in the fog? You can see them from a long ways from well, a lot I mean, of places. In the yeah. fog, it's really hard to tell where the lights are. It's just kind of like... 
somebody threw on the light switch and it just generally lights up and then goes dark and then lights up and you don't really know direction yeah those lights there yeah and again um they were a little bit controversial too but they're still there uh spinning and making electricity can I mention one more thing before we start talking to Pickering here? This is a well, you're going to owe him a lot of money for fairly him off for so long. Fairly uh, mind bending too. The uh, Marine Patrol is seeking permission to bug commercial fishing boats. Oh, I've heard this. Yes, yes. and this would be a non warranted surveillance of a commercial fishing boat. They are concerned with uh, a couple of different fisheries, including the lobster fishery. This and isn't the uh, language police now, is it? No, this is the uh, where are you going and what are you doing police. And yeah. the idea without a warrant, Fourth uh, Amendment, I believe, United States Constitution, um, Fourth Amendment says... Uh, yeah, rights to privacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, they are seeking to put uh, monitoring devices, GPS devices, as well as possible listening devices. You know how we could hear the people on the El Faro? We could be able to have your conversation in the wheelhouse here. That's what they're talking about. No warrant. And the reason is they don't need a warrant. You are engaging in a highly regulated fishery. Uh-huh. You have surrendered your rights to privacy right there. Um, that cool or not? Talking about the new surveillance uh, state that we live in, you know? Well, I'm sure there is. Uh, we have a, a phone call, so let's uh, let's go to Paul, who is uh, on the road. Good morning, Paul. Hello. Welcome to Boat Talk. I, well, thank you. Um, I actually have a nautical history. I had a grandfather who was lost at sea twice. Only once was for real, and that was actually in the papers. But I was uh, very interested in your listeners comment about the sea level rise or you know apparent sea level rise and the area of fall and i think that that's explained by the ocean currents you know there's a worldwide series of current currents which are powered by solar energy and they tend to spin there's a submerging current which is down in the sargasso sea and then um, there's another swirl where that water comes up wherever, where it'll be a bulge. And um, it's kind of like, you know, your washing machine going around, the water sloshes up on the edge or, a, you know, a glass of Coke or whatever. And I'm assuming that the currents probably go faster with global warming. I can't quote that. And that would make the uh, uh, vortexes more intense. And I'll probably go online and try to look that up. Yeah, we were uh, making the point that the ocean's never been flat, let alone, uh, you know, whether it's rising or not. And Well, it, it, as far as absolute depth and then as far as the Earth spinning, but this would be different from the equatorial bulge. Uh, these are localized areas that I think are powered by the vortexes of uh, uh, emerging waters and submerging waters, which are helical in nature. Yeah, and again, way more than one uh, simple trick going on. And yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we forget We forget about that's another thing they uh, will say dismissively, well, it's all gone out to sea, which is three-quarters <laughs> of the planet and drives the uh, uh, thermohaline uh, circulations of the ocean, drive the weather on this planet, and, you know. Exactly. A little, little exactly. important. They, they drive each other. <laughs> yeah. Are you driving, uh, Paul? Yeah, you... Air drives water more, I, I believe. Yeah. Are you driving this morning, Paul? Well, I did actually stop, uh, so I'm not talking on the phone and driving. Good man. Like I say, keep your attention outboard, hands on the wheel. Keep her going. You got it. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Okie doke. Thank you, sir. Paul called one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Yeah, and we're doing boat talk this morning. They let us do it once a month, and it's uh, usually too much fun. And as we're saying, goes awful fast. We have uh, Gardner Pickering in here this morning from the Michael Hughes Company. Good morning. Yeah. Um, what's the Michael Hughes company do just in general? In general, it's a general housing contractor. So we're building construction company, well, well established Blue Hill, Maine. So that's what of the 30 people, that's what the other 29 do. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And you, they couldn't think of anything good for you to do. So they stuck you in a corner with a, uh, figured he was a washout. Yeah. Um, Michael Hughes, among other services, um, you guys have a crane, uh, crane services as well? Yep, crane, cabinet shop. Yeah. Uh, so we'll do the houses or we'll just do remodels. Uh, 
So we build a lot of cabinets both in-state and out-of-state. But I can't talk much about that because I don't have anything to do with the house side. But you guys have a, um, a CNC uh, a computer-controlled router. That's that's my end of right? things. Right, yeah. Now, do they use the uh, uh, computer router on, on – uh, House parts, kitchen oh. parts, uh, moldings, that, that sort of stuff? That's what it was purchased for. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. Let, well, let's, let's back up and explain what a CNC machine yes, sir. is. It's a, uh, it's, it boggles my mind to see what happened, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll start it quickly. There's a vacuum table that holds a sheet of plywood down nice, flat, and tight. And then there's a, a router that goes over the sheet of plywood that's controlled on a three-dimensional axis so the router can go uh, three different directions and from that by by use of a computer it can make curves straight lines whatever but very precisely route whatever you want to do so why don't you and it takes its clues it. from a computer that gets its clues from you just yeah. point a magic laser at something yeah. and it goes beep and that's gardener's job he makes the clues yeah. and then the cnc machine goes and why don't you explain just well what i've skipped over yeah it's an eight horsepower router and we've got it on a, a five foot by 13 foot table so we cut eight horsepower router so we mostly cut uh plywood but we do a lot of lumber as well i can cut uh up to four and a half inches high and my end of the wow. job is uh, i'm working with cad drawings autocad is the most uh common one but uh, in the marine industry i use something called rhinoceros which uh handles curves better it's so it's my job to get the drawings right and then it's the operator's job to tell the machine which side of the line to cut on which bit to use how fast to move and that changes with the material and and the finish so for instance we cut scarf joints on plywood a lot and that takes a very different bit to get that feather edge either a 12 to 1 angle or a 6 to 1 angle depending on on what the purpose is a scarf joint being a long um, a low slope uh, uh, 12 to 1 10 to 1 6 to 1 um, that you join two pieces of wood lengthwise with uh, like two shingles laid uh, opposite uh, angles there and um, so anyway, to keep the router uh, uh, busy, you guys make boat kits. That's one of the things. That's probably 20% of my business. Yeah. Is we've got a dozen different designers. Everything we cut was, was, uh, was designed by somebody else. We don't do in-house work. Uh, Francois Vivier in France, Ian Outred, Walter Simmons in Lincolnville, Doug Hyland in, uh, in Brooklyn. So we work through a lot of them. Um, most of the time, they give me the CAD drawings. Sometimes I do some of the workup drawings myself. And that allows us to put together uh, about 30 different kits that we have available. And then people come in and want custom, custom jobs as well. I'm working on a custom 28-foot aluminum launch for somebody right now. We'll cut... We have cut the mold that it sits on. We don't cut metal, but I've done the drawings for him to take to somebody that does uh, metal plasma cutting. And this is a one-of powerboat. This is a one-off. Going to be, you're making all the wooden molded parts that will be filled with, with foam and then fiberglassed over, right? No, I'm making a cradle. So my part is a throwaway. Right. It, it's just a cradle. And it's the, a one-of. The mold won't yep. be, again, won't be reproduced. Uh, and the aluminum parts will lay in that mold, and if we so that it makes right, it the female. Yes. Yeah. If we did it right, he'll be able to drop those pre-cut aluminum parts in and weld them together. Magic. Walk away with a launch. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, hopefully, all the uh, uh, again garbage in, garbage out, right of the computer. We try very hard to get it right. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, um, so. When you're you're making this uh, cradle to hold the parts, uh, do you have to make cutouts where the welds are going to be so they don't uh, catch the cradle on fire? Yes. Uh -huh. So I've just cut big half circles where all the joints are uh -huh. so that he can get so to you the could, metal. So you could reuse the cradle then. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. If, uh, you know, 
every person that comes in with a design is convinced that they're going to sell thousands, <laughs> that they have made the perfect boat. Perfect boat, yeah. yeah and they're still designing that. We, we've had calls on, on that, haven't yeah. we? <laughs> and perfect boat, I guess, is, is kind of relative when you get right down to it. I was, um, in my head, I thought that uh, these were all going to be stitch and glue boats. Uh, stitch and glue, let's define that. You um, take pieces of plywood, put them around uh, molds and or bulkheads, and you um, uh, literally wire them together temporarily, maybe a um, uh, even a plastic electrical uh, tie, but you, then you fiberglass the uh, pieces together, and that gets you your boat shape and, uh, quite quickly. And, and again, pretty user-friendly way. Um, that's a fair bit of your kits, but you also have more traditionally built lap strake. Um, the probably 95% of the kits we sell are plywood lap strake. That's where a three eighths plank overlaps the next three eighths plank by, um, about half an inch. Think of clapboards on a house. And the structure is when those planks are epoxied together. So most of these boats are built without internal frames. It's it's the glued lap that yeah. is the structure of the yeah. Boat. And again, yeah. that's an epoxy, different from a stitch and glue, but it's a it's a glue that's doing all the work. Lap strake boats for a boat builder. Uh, there's parts of those that are challenging. Yeah, the ends of the lap strakes. The where they, yes, 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 yes. Every boat builder, uh, you know, uh, again would struggle with such a thing, no matter how good you are. Some days, but the computer, who cares, right? The computer cuts those uh, tapers in, into the ends, right, with a, a flat bit. No. Uh, that still has to be hand done. Ah. Ah. It is technically possible for us to do that, to cut what would be called the gain. Yeah. That's that sliding bevel yeah. the whole way. It's technically possible. It would be such a staggering amount of work um, that we haven't done it. Mm-hmm. So they get cut in place. That's right. Yeah. Now, um, about a year or so ago, a, a young lady from uh, Ellsworth, uh, Lila Hansen, called me up, and uh, she wanted advice. Uh, she wanted to, uh, her dad and her wanted to build a boat, and what should they do? How to proceed? I recommended that they uh, look at stitch and glue because it's so uh, rewarding <laughs> and gets you a boat-shaped object, object pretty quick, and, and again, it's good for uh, amateurs. They uh, uh, went with that, and I uh, believe they've uh, launched. They're going to be launching their boat this spring. Hope to talk to them uh, sometime later, maybe. But I talked to her about it a little bit. And what was the most challenging part? She says figuring stuff out, um, the layout of it, the uh, uh, laying down the lines, so to speak. You know, to, to develop the shapes herself, which is again done by the computer. So when you provide a boat uh, kit, we've skipped a lot of the work. You skip some of the work. But not a lot of it. There's still a lot of work left. There's still an awful lot of work. When the hull's done, it's sort of like when we build a house, they come down and it's framed, and and the client says, oh, Oh, my my house is framed. It's nearly done. I can almost move in. (laughs) The hull hull is a a big chunk, but you're definitely not even halfway there. Mm -hmm. Especially for the sailing models. So there's there's still a lot of work there. And you're mentioning here we got uh, several dozen models, but you got a couple of greatest hits. Uh, Ian Outred's Caledonia Yawl, uh, and that's that's a 19 foot double ender with uh, a main mast and a mizzen. That's probably our biggest. That is our biggest seller. That's just cute as heck. The um, uh Main and the mizzen are, are different. The the main is uh, uh, not gaff rigged; it's a gaff shape, but it's uh, what do we call that? It's a, a balanced lug. Balanced lug, thank you. And uh, a traditional uh, triangular sail on the little tiny mizzen Macaroni. sitting behind the fellow. It's just cute as hell. Yeah, uh, that phone that really helps steer. Yes. That- we do have another phone call. Let's go to Summer in Swanville. Good morning, Summer. Good morning. This is actually Sumner with an N. But- Sumner, sorry. Yeah. Oh, just calling because I'm just about to finish a boat kit that I bought a little over a year ago down at Blue Hill. Nice. What are we we building? This is a sort of a 19-foot rowboat. It's a fairing design done by uh, Clint Chase down in Bitterford. And how's it coming, and are you going to be able to get it out the living room window? Um, Well, I'm building it in a house. I was actually... Already planning to cut a big hole in the wall. 
It's not a. It's You're an old, married, old joke, actually, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I'm hoping to, to uh, cut that hole next week because I'm in the midst of painting and varnishing. Well, it is it is in, the holy the season right now, so your your timing is good. Sumner, yeah. I was just about to ask Gardner here how how much work is in one of those boats, as in hours, so to speak. Uh, you know. Uh, I gave up keeping track a long time ago. The, yeah, good man. I can see that point. But, again, but, it's... Um, it, it, this is, you know, the first time I've built any sort of boat. And um, what was great about it was not just the plywood strakes or, and so forth are all come cut, but the chipboard molds and uh, strong back to set the molds up and so on. So you get a feeling that you've gotten started and... A lot of the complication about starting is already done, and uh, that made a big difference for me. Was there any parts that uh, did make you scratch your head and, and wonder? Uh, oh, every part you have to scratch your head about and try and figure out just where it goes, especially when it, as the pile of wood first arrives. Yeah. So. But that's the rewarding part is to see it uh, uh, actually look like a boat. Yeah. Yeah. The great thing is as a beginner, you can sort the parts out, and then you begin to realize what's involved. So, now we're going to finish this extra fancy uh, uh, workman uh, latex house paint, uh, and how are we going to use it? Oh, I, I got the lobster boat paint, red lobster boat paint on the outside of the hull, and I am mostly doing varnish over epoxy on the inside. I thought I'd paint everything, but um, my partner likes to look at the wood. So. Yeah, hard not to. I've actually uh, helped maintain boats that. Um, for instance, people with rivets in their pockets are forbidden from even uh, looking at, let alone sitting <laughs> in. I'm just saying yeah. we could make it fancy enough not to, you know. Uh, how we gonna, how we plan to use the thing, uh, you and your partner? Oh, we're going to be rowing all over Penobscot Bay, I hope. Nice. We've been rowing a bit. I've got a 15-foot guide boat, one of the ones made in Vermont, but it's not really made for rowing with two people. And I've actually added a bit to this design, which really slowed things down in terms of Everything's going to be adjustable for rowing, you know, orlock placement, seat placement, and uh, seat. So multiple orlock, orlock uh, possibility. Yeah. Sort of a rail, but I can slide them along and bolt them into place. Depending on who that, is that in the boat and, to figure out, and how it's balanced. Yeah. So, so Sumner, it so, sounds like you've done quite a bit of rowing already. Um, what kind of life jacket do you prefer for rowing? For um, rowing? I've mostly been. Uh, those little inflatable ones that the, aren't even really close to the through. Right, just look like a little you tube hanging out, around you your neck. The pocket. Yeah, the harness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, again, it's good to have something on you. Um, I keep uh, one of my great jokes is I work on the water, not in it. You know, uh, yeah, in it, not on it, uh, or on it, not in it. Yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I, I, I um, rode the. Uh, Blackburn Challenge last year, down in the, not last year, the year before, which is a race that goes out around Cape Ann, basically roll from Gloucester to Gloucester, uh, out around Cape Ann, and it was a rough, rough day, and usually I don't actually wear my life jacket unless the situation looks bad. In this case, I stopped in the middle of the race and put it on because it looked bad. Good man. So, that's, that's a pretty some, serious race. That's Blackburn. serious water down there. Howard Blackburn was a famous fisherman that, uh, what, what did he do exactly? Did he row across the Atlantic? Uh, no, no. He rode somewhere. He, he, he and his dory mate were out doing their work and got separated from the sooner when a cold front went through falls and so forth. And this was off the coast of Newfoundland, I believe. Yes, it was the uh, west coast of Newfoundland. And middle of february Ooh. and they and he rode and the door well they both rode until his partner actually died froze to death probably had a stroke <laughs> and uh they, he and howard and blackburn ended up getting to shore but couldn't find anybody he came ashore found a building that was empty and um next day he started rowing again and finally found some uh people wintering on close to the not on the coast, up the river away. And the whole group of people were free, were ended up starving that winter. Only saved because a sealing uh, vessel, of, I think Gloucester again, um, was 
frozen in, got frozen in late in the season. The pack ice blew across the Gulf of St. Lawrence and caught their sealing vessel, and they were stranded off, you know, a few miles. Ooh, breaking up, this, yeah. Found this group of uh, people, including Howard Blackburn, uh, all starving, and they went back to the vessel and brought some provisions. Don't give up. Yeah. Uh, and you're breaking up a little bit there, uh, Sumner. All right. Well, that's, I said what I wanted to say, so yeah. thanks hey. for having boat talk. Right. Hey, good luck with the boat. Uh, happy day for the launch, and can't wait for you. <laughs> yeah, next send, week. Send us some pictures. Thank nice. you, Sumner. Okay. Yeah. And again, we're talking with uh, uh, Gardner Pickering. They uh, make uh, uh, pre-cut boat kits over to the uh, Michael Hughes Company in Blue Hill, Maine. Um, again, we were talking about uh, there's a number of different designs. There's a couple of greatest hits now. There's got to be a couple hundred hours. Uh, uh, again, the hours that we mentioned will be three figures uh, minimum. Maybe not a couple hundred, but more than a hundred anyway. And yeah, I, any of these little boats. Together. I never try to undersell. Yeah, these as far as the hours. That Caledonia Yawl, which is mine, I've got about four fifty in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but again, who is strictly counting? If you, you know, it's the kind of things we like to fudge on in our heads anyway. Interesting in your uh, beautiful brochure here, you uh, also point out that you can uh, recommend other people to build the kit for the customer. Yep, if they want them finished off. Yeah, including our friends uh, uh, Doug Highland down in Brooklyn, uh, French and Webb in Belfast, mm-hmm. uh, the Two Daughters uh, Boat Works in Vermont, and the Old Wharf Dory Company in Wellfleet, Massachusetts, you guys mentioned, among other people. And, and again, um, uh, the uh, uh, young lady and her father that put that together, they had uh, some, uh, some tool ability owned a skill saw and, and might have gone to the Home Depot and bought a jigsaw sort of thing, you know, and, and were able to figure it out and make a boat. The glue is, is uh, as you said, pretty critical to design and also to, I would think, successfully putting the boat together. I just would not use anything other than epoxy yeah. on, but on these. But you got to know how to use epoxy. Epoxy uh, has a little bit of a learning curve to it. and Yes, it does. And... Even people who work with epoxy have different tricks from other people who work with epoxy. And, and uh, if you do it right, it can be a joy, but an epoxy disaster. I've been near a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, not only expensive, it's uh, dangerous and all kinds of other stuff, too. So, yeah, uh, learning to work, work with epoxy, I think, would be the uh, one of the key things. And the stuff sure is magic. There's no doubt about that. Fire, be- better than fiberglass in so many ways. uh Fiberglass. Think of fiberglass as a uh, as like cement. You embed that um, uh, mesh cloth in there, and it all uh, goes together. Uh, epoxy uh, does that, but it's also a glue. For instance, if we wanted a fiberglass on top of some already cured fiberglass, it doesn't meld with the fiberglass underneath. And and new fiberglass not a good glue for old fiberglass, but epoxy again uh, is a good glue as well. It's wonderful and dangerous stuff. Yeah. Primary and secondary bonds. Yo's back. I Yo's hear. back. Good morning, Yo. What's up? Hi, guys. Look, Besides sea level. You're on the subject, um, can you give us some pointers about hand- how to handle epoxy? Thanks again. Gloves. Don't get it on you. Work clean. Uh, be careful of the additives you use with epoxy. One of the things that you, there's uh, stiffeners and thickeners and all sorts of stuff, and that changes the. Uh, uh, the the curing rate of the epoxy, some things like especially aluminum, people add aluminum to a, for a silver effect or whatever, but that it'll make the epoxy kick probably twice as fast as normal. And you have a have to be careful of the temperatures you work in epoxy too. Can't really go below fifty because the epoxy won't penetrate whatever you're trying to glue together. My biggest thing is uh, you have to be personally clean, but you got to work clean, too, in a, in a way that let's uh, go back to a cement amal- analogy. You uh, want that cement to dry smoothly so you don't have to grind it all off afterwards to make it smooth. And, again, working smart with epoxy uh, saves so much uh, unnecessary work. Otherwise, um, they have something called peel ply. It's sort of a, a, a mold release fabric that you can put over. Uh, the top of wet uh, epoxy will mold it a little bit. But here's a, a beautiful boat talk tip for you. Duct tape does the same thing. I call it down east peel ply. You can uh, lay duct tape over wet epoxy. Uh, let's say you've thickened it and you've molded it a little bit. 
and uh, you lay that duct tape over it, you can maintain the shape a little bit. When that cures, duct tape pull right off. <laughs> if I could comment on the difference. Uh, sure, go ahead. Between hardening and curing of epoxy. Ah. ah. Epoxy generally is going to harden overnight, but it's not cured. It's not completely cured, sometimes for four or five days. And if you sand it after, uh, before it's cured, you could be breathing in uncured epoxy dust, and that's that's really bad. That's a yeah. that's a very dangerous thing. I, yeah. I've got uh, I have a lifelong relationship with Advair and Albuterol now for years of using epoxy. You can become uh, sensitized to the way I look at it. You can drink the resin, but the hardener will kill you uh, if you just get too much of it on you, alone. you don't want to drink it. But yeah. you can become sensitized to the hardener so that um, even epoxy dust will cause uh, some boat builders to break out in a rash, and you're pretty much done at that point. You can't mm. do that no more. So. We have another phone call, but I want to quickly uh, read an email we received from our friend Jeff. He says, uh, this is back to... Uh, sea level height. Wind has a major effect on sea level height, especially trade winds. Eastern coast of North America and the Caribbean are much higher than off Africa. If you've ever been to Florida Bay in a norther, you'll see it on a small scale. Miles of usually submerged flats dried out sometimes for days. Again, website Sea Level Info has worldwide gauge data as well as many peer-reviewed articles. Current rate of sea level rise is 2 millimeters per year, same as it's been for over 100 years by satellite altimetry. 3 millimeters, so that's what the satellites are saying. If you've ever looked at a millimeter on tape, I don't know how they measure sea level height from in millimeters from space. Lasers. <laughs> I'm uh, thinking... I don't think it's a laser. I think it's some sort of a radar kind of thing yeah. that they're using. But they, they say they can from um, – let's go to that phone call from Oliver in Lemoyne. Good morning, Oliver. We're approaching the end of Boat Talk. Hopefully we can take care of you. What's up? Oh, I was just going to talk about the dangers of, of the vapor, and I think you guys already already touched on that. But, uh, you know, particularly in a, in a confined space for any amount of time at all um, – you know, I know several people that have had a lot of issues because of that and yeah. had to go home and sit in a poultice full of like oatmeal or, you know. Some people say <laughs> that it can lead to making bad puns. Now, fiberglass uh, uh, fiberglass has much uh, higher vapor, and working in some boat shops, I've actually gone to a store afterwards and had people kind of cock their heads and say, what's that smell? Yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, people can taste it when they kiss you. That's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, epoxy, much less so, but still dangerous, even though it doesn't smell that bad. I think it's even more dangerous than, than you know, than, than fiberglass, uh, partially because what you're saying is you don't realize that you're wearing it at that point. And if you're sweating down in the bilge of a boat, you know, you've just doubled or tripled the, 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 your exposure to it because your pores being open. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's bad stuff. So now I'm wearing a, uh overall suit. I have uh, uh, little plastic booties on. I have a respirator on. I've got a uh, hoodie on as well. Um, that's right. not fun to work that way. Rubber gloves, it ain't fun to work yeah. that way. Yeah, full, full face mask, you yeah. know, tear away windshields. But you got uh, to. You should. You, you got, got to. It, you know, yeah. I mean, everybody would love, I'd love to just work with wood and, and uh, copper fasteners, but... If you got to make money in Down East Maine, you kind of have to be able to <laughs> play with all the stuff. That wood You're dust right. ain't good for you either, Oliver, you know? No, I, I understand that for certain. Uh, yeah, no, uh, it is. I, I, I can't even really mess with Peak without having uh, a on my forearm. Yeah. And forget about Spanish either. <laughs> yeah. You have it. Yeah, no. Yeah, they look at you funny at the store. You say, oh, you must uh, be noticing my cologne. I call it styrene for men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I turned down a very lucrative uh, deck hardware job because I didn't want to work in the shop with that smell. Oh, yeah, no, it's it can be an issue, let alone the dust. Yeah. 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 Oh, after about three weeks, you don't smell it anymore. 
Um, that's that's the weird part. Yeah. That's what we say like to ourselves about some other stuff that you then walk out of the shop and feel all dizzy and dizzy's good some days, but not like that. You know, yeah, not, not a good kinda buzz. Like, kind of like being a being a pig farmer. After a few weeks, you don't smell it, but guess what? Yeah, not a good buzz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tough coming home. Yeah. All right, guys. Love the show. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. Appreciate it, Oliver. We are, uh, again, running out of boat talk to, this morning. We make uh, something out of very little, it seems, and, you know, hour goes fast. Um, I have you, a quick question yeah. for, um, for Gardner. Uh, your simplest boat kit, how many sheets of plywood would it take to make a, a really simple, small one? Uh, we've got them down to uh, seven feet. Seven foot. So, that's... so you can get out of one sheet? I think it's two layers of four millimeter plywood. Uh, that'll be a little pram dinghy. I'm thinking, a, yeah. That'll yeah. be a, a feather pram. Yeah. yeah. Mike and I made one out of a one sheet of plywood one time many many years ago, but that wasn't really a kit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we got to ship this stuff as well. Shipping is interesting. We've sort of figured that out. Uh, we buy four by eight pallets. Yeah. We leave the parts tabbed to the full sheet of plywood and then oh. build nearly bulletproof end caps because the feather edge scarf joints have to survive yeah very, uh, del- yeah, very right. delicate okay. yeah hmm. but uh, what about a step scarf couldn't we get a, or again the plywood's not very thick so we don't have yeah. the room to have a blunt end in that scarf do we the scarf is determined by the designer yeah so outward wants a traditional slope scarf. Yeah. Francois Vivier draws these puzzle joint scarves. Uh, oh, an old English hippie, a French guy. Yeah. I mean, who, well, who are you trying Japanese to work with these, these nightmare designers, you know? So, so each designer specifies his own. And, uh, yeah. And I actually don't have the right to change them, which is a good excuse when people ask me to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, we're still uh, thinking up new shapes for boats, which is kind of fascinating. It's snowflakes. It's uh, zebras all have different stripes. Did you know that? Um, just for example, uh, besides fingerprints and snowflakes. And, and again, uh, the the perfect way to uh, uh, move a shape through water has not necessarily been come up with yet. I see a trimaran in here, too. That's kind of interesting. We sell any of those? Uh, not huh. yet. No? That, that came up, too. I, I, I spotted that. It looks like a fast little boat. Yeah, John but. Marple's uh, uh, trimaran uh, kit. Yeah, it doesn't say how long it is, but, uh, yeah, about, what, 12, uh, 14 feet or so, it looks like. We got, before sure. we, we head yeah. out here, though, I really need to talk about the Boat Talk Cruise we have coming up in June. Um, June Good 24th, yes, our, our annual Boat Talk Cruise where we discover some sound. Um and also, we're going to be trying to work up a second uh, boat talk cruise. We haven't got the details on that yet, but it's going to be somewhere down the coast, and it's going to be a daytime nature cruise. Yeah, it'll be mid-coast, literally several hours uh, away from our home instead of your home, possibly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, more more information on that. Just stay tuned to WERU, yeah. and we'll be here. And the boat talk cruise, is, there's never been a bad one yet. It's a fundraiser for the radio station. It raises a pretty good... Uh, regular uh, ding forum and and we have a wonderful buffet and uh just a memorable three-hour cruise every time with a wonderful set of people and, and there's never been a bad one yet so yeah. highly recommended kind of weru thing you're supposed to do <laughs> great yes well thank you gardner we've uh, enjoyed having you here and uh hopefully you'll be uh, shipping out some kit boats to people around here how do they get more information though anybody would like to get more info uh the houston company website is huesco h-e-w-e-s-c-o.com dot com very good thank you gardner pickering thanks for having thanks me. to john greenman down in the engine room for engineering and uh, stay tuned for on the wing with emma finn looks like coming up next We have a few seconds here. Let's take a quick look at the weather coming up today and tomorrow and the next day. Mostly cloudy, then isolated showers, high of 68 today. Tonight, showers likely, low of 46. Wednesday, showers likely, high of 54. 
Wednesday night, chance of showers, then partly cloudy, low 40. Thursday, mostly sunny, 56 degrees. And uh, we're looking for a Thursday night. Uh, let's see if I can find this. Thursday night is going to be... Low of 35, partly cloudy. Friday, mostly sunny, with a high of 54. Friday night, mostly clear, with a low of 34. You're listening to WERU, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. We're located in Orland, Maine, and we're at the east end of Orland on the um, Acadia Highway, or Atlantic Highway, anyways, Route 1 in Orland. Come out and see us sometime. Stay tuned for On the Wing. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for more than 30 years at 16 Lime Rock Street in Camden, gambleandhunter.com. Support for WERU also comes from Allen Insurance and Financial of Camden, helping to insure Maine boats and their people since 1866, an employee-owned company, allaninsuranceandfinancial.com or 800-439-4311. Hi, this is Steve Kyle, host of WERU's Power for the People. Please join me and my on-air guests the second Wednesday of each month at 10 a.m., where we discuss a variety of energy issues and solutions that matter to Maine citizens. That's Power for the People, a listener call-in show on energy issues, the second Wednesday of every month at 10 a.m., only on WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Handmade Papers Gallery in Brooklyn, specializing in custom lampshades, lamps, wooden wares by Lou Charlotte, and more. Featuring artist James Dodds, 113 Reach Road in Brooklyn, 359-8345, handmadepapersonline.com. 